Good morning and welcome. Today we gather to all thank our God together and as the Psalms say, to recount his deeds. Today as we celebrate Reformation Sunday, we especially recount what he has done so that we can say that we have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to God's glory alone. Amen. Let's stand and begin with our call to worship. We'll read aloud together from Psalm chapter 9. Let's read. I will give thanks to you, Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing the praises of your name, O Most High. from the Heidelberg Catechism, some of the questions. What is our only hope in life and death? That, that we, we are, are not our own, but, but belong to God and to our Savior, Savior Jesus Christ. Christ. Can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? Since, Since the, the fall, no mere human has been, been able to keep the law of God perfectly. 
and he will punish sin in his just judgment. Is there any way to escape punishment and be brought back into God's favor? Yes. yes. To satisfy his justice, God himself, out of mere mercy, reconciles us to himself and delivers us from sin and from the punishment for our sin by a Redeemer. Who is the Redeemer? The only Redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, in whom God became man and bore the penalty of sin himself.
Amen. Let's clap for the Lord. Let's read a few scripture readings with the Reformation in mind. Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Let's all read together. For, For none, none of us lives, lives to himself, and, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's.
How precious it is that the Lord Jesus indeed is our hope. Let's take a moment of confession today and let's take a moment to confess that which we boast in, that which we hope in that isn't in Christ alone. And as we do so, let us remember the treasure of having Christ in whom to place our hope. Let's take a moment now quietly and confess that. For me, he died, and for me, he lives. Amen. Let's stand and read together from the hymn. Let's read this chorus that affirms our forgiveness and salvation and our hope in Christ. Let's put these words up from the hymn. Let's read together. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me.
Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this great thing that we know today, your son crucified, our hope, our stay. You have loved us first. And for this, we are so, so grateful. God, we pray that today you would speak to us, that you would teach us, that you would meet us, that what it is that's going on in our hearts would be met by you, your truth, your spirit, through song, through scripture, through the teaching of the word. Would you have your way in our hearts? And I pray that together we would yield to you, our Savior, our God, our King today. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Now I want to read the word and with you. So I invite you to stand for the reading of the word from the first chapter of the book of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, She and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband, even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. 
Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Let's pray again. Beautiful Lord, we, we ask that you speak to us this morning. As we learn from a, from a very important book in the Bible, as we learn from Ruth, as we learn from Naomi, as we learn from Boaz, as we learn from every person that is part of this amazing story. I pray, Lord, that by the power of your Spirit, the presence of the Spirit, and the ministry of the Spirit, we may understand, believe, and apply. And as always, Lord, we pray that you take us to Jesus, and that we also may be able to see Jesus in the pages of the story of Ruth. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And the church says, you may take a seat. Good morning, familia. My name is Hannibal Rodriguez, and I wanted, I wanted to welcome you all again to those of you that are here in person, those of you that are worshiping with us online. We want you to let you know that if you are weary and need rest, if you are mourning and long for comfort, if you have felt and desire strength, if you have sinned and need a savior, we welcome you all in the name of Jesus, the friend of sinners. Amen. I'm super excited because today we get to start, I get to start this new series based on the book of Ruth, and we have called this series, Ruth, the Story of a Loving Life. Um, and as many of you know, the book of Ruth has four chapters, and what we're going to do is we're going to grab one chapter per sermon, so it's a four-part sermon series. Um, and I have to be super honest, right from the beginning, there's so much stuff in this story that we're not going to be able to cover everything in this story, but we're going to try to do our best. Amen? Amen? Now, the question for some of you may be, why do a series in the book of Ruth? Um, I hope you know that as pastors and preachers in the church, we are always, we try to be intentional about why is it that we're preaching what we're preaching during different times in the season of the church. Um, Usually, we don't just pick any book and say, well, let's preach that one. Usually, there's a reason why we're preaching this one. And if you know something about the context of the book of Ruth, uh, I think that if you hear and you see and you read about the context of the book of Ruth, I think that you would understand why is it that as a church we chose to do a series and this amazing story. This is Judges chapter 1, verse 25, which is the context of the book of Ruth. 
And this is what the text says. <clears throat> In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. The ESV translates that as everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I don't think that it's a secret to anybody that we live in a world and in a culture in which everyone does what is right in their own eyes. History always repeats itself. And I think that as we think about our culture and our time, and actually some of the things that could happen within the church, the book of Ruth is going to help us at least in two different things. It's going to help us see that God is always working in the, midst, in the midst of darkness, that God is always at work even when you live in very, you could say, pagan times, that Christians are not hopeless because God is always working in the midst of chaos. Always. And I think also that the book of Ruth is going to help us because not only God is working in the midst of chaos, but that he's using his people. Actually, that God is working through his people as they live faithful, loving lives in the midst of chaos. There's so much that we can learn. And today we're going to look, as we just read uh, Ruth chapter 1, and we're actually going to learn from the three main characters we find in that chapter, Elimelech, Naomi, and Ruth. Elimelech, Naomi, and Ruth. Can you do me a favor, just for the sake of conversation, can you ask the person next to you, are you ready to learn from Ruth? Have you guys noticed that every time I ask you to do one question, you just continue going? <laughs> every time. After, are you learning from Ruth? Did, did you close the door at home? You know, it's, everything goes in a different direction. <laughs> These are the three things that we learn in this story, at least from chapter one. We learn that in order for us to be people that is used by God, living faithful, loving lives, we need to understand what it means to be, to exercise submission, to exercise sacrifice, and what it means to exercise commitment. With Elimelech, we're going to learn about submission. With Naomi, we're going to learn about sacrifice. And with Ruth, we're going to learn about commitment. Let's go with the first point, submission. Let's just start with verse 1. Look at what it says. In the days when the judges ruled, this is how we know that this is uh, the context of the book. is in the book of Judges. There was a famine in the land. So a man, Elimelech, from Bethlehem in Judah together with his wife Naomi and the two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Now, you have to pay attention to the phrase, the famine in, famine in the land, because that phrase is not only describing the physical condition of the land, what's happening in their environment in which there was no food in Bethlehem, but that phrase is also talking about the spiritual condition of their environment. In the context of the book of Judges, and in the context of the story of Ruth, everyone would know that the reason why they are experiencing this famine is because they have walked away from the Lord. That they have this weird hate-love relationship with God, in which God is not allowed for these people, his people, to live that way. Actually, if you know anything about the story of the book of Judges, 
is that it's, it's like, a, like a cycle, right? They do good, they follow the Lord, and then somehow they walk away from the Lord, and they do really bad, and then they repent, and the Lord does this thing over and over again. Brings them to repentance, they, uh, delivers them, they, they get comfortable, walk away from the Lord. That is the whole story. And part of the reason why they're going through this famine is because the Lord is exercising discipline or bringing discipline upon them. Now, I know that that's an issue for a lot of people. And that's part of the reason why I think that we need to make a distinction between the wrath of God and the discipline of God. When God exercises wrath, it's always for destruction. This is why when Jesus goes to the cross, he receives the wrath of God, the wrath that you and I deserved. But when the Bible talks about the discipline of God, that's something that God only applies to his people. And the aim is always restoration, not destruction. Like a good surgeon, God will not hesitate in bringing or allowing pain into the life of a person to keep that person from destroying him or herself. It's actually the discipline of God is a, it's a loving act from our God. And I also know that even when we talk about this, there might be one or, or two of you guys here that think, well, I, I actually don't need pain in my life in order for me to learn. All I need is for God to speak to me, to make it clear to me, because I could be changed by information. I beg to disagree. I actually think that most of us, Deep down inside, even if you deny it, know that there are times in our lives and there are things in our life that require pain in order for us to change. I don't think that this is 100% the case for everybody, but many of us. Part of the reason why I believe that is because even as adults, if you're an adult, many times we learn like kids learn. See, I don't know if you remember when you had your kids little. I do remember because that was only a few years ago. In which I could tell one of my daughters, don't touch that because you're going to get burned. You would think that information is enough. Please, Camila, please, Alejandra, don't touch that because you're going to get burned. Well, my children back in those days, which they thought they were wiser than a 45-year-old man, almost 46 next month, by the way. Uh, they thought that they knew better. So I'll turn around, and then I'll just hear this. That was it. And in a loving, spiritual way, I would look at them, and I would say something like, I told you. You know how I know that that's how we learn? You know how you know that that's how you learn? Because you got burned before. So we know that there are areas in our lives in which we need the Because we don't just learn by information. Now, the text uses a ton of ironic language. So Bethlehem, for example, means the house of bread. The irony in the text is that the house of bread, in the house of bread, there is no food. 
So this is the reason why Elimelech takes his wife Naomi and their two kids and they move to Moab. But if you pay attention to the story, and if you know the story of the Bible, you know that that move does not make any sense. Actually, for any Israelite to move to Moab will be considered something like a betrayal of your faith and a betrayal of your people. Because Moab will not be a safe place for people to be, an Israelite to be. And there's a, histor there's a historic reason for that. The Israelites and the Moabites were forever enemies. See, the Moabites came from the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter in Genesis chapter 19. You remember that? The Moabites were the group that did not help the Israelites when they were escaping Egypt in Numbers chapter 21. In Numbers chapter 25, there's a Moabite king that wants to curse the Israelites, and God does not allow it. So he hires this prophet to curse the Israelites, and God does not allow it. But you know what this prophet did? He advised the Moabite woman to seduce the male Israelites because that's how they would get them. And that's exactly what happened. And because of that, they started worshiping other gods. See, this king found a way to curse the Israelites. This Moabite king found a way to curse the Israelites without cursing them. So why would Elimelech take his family to the enemy land. Well, scholars have different opinions about this. So some of the questions scholars ask was, was Elimelech being irresponsible? Maybe. Did he lack faith in God and that he would, that he would eventually provide? Maybe. Was he being unfaithful to God? Maybe. Or was he acting like a good father and a good husband? and try to provide for his family? Maybe. The reality is that the text doesn't tell us why is it, it's not clear about why is it that he moved to Moab. But I want to offer an option to be considered, and I want to be super careful because it's just an option for you to consider. Maybe the reason why Elimelech moved to Moab was because God himself was prompting him to move to Moab. Now, even though there's nothing in the text that says that uh, like clearly, specifically, this is my reasoning. Elimelech's name means my God is king. One thing that you're going to learn as we go through the book of Ruth is that every name in the story is extremely important. Because every name in the story describes the personality and the character of the, per of the people in the story. So if this is true, that Elimelech means my God is king, it is, I think it is safe to assume that Elimelech, Elimelech has a lifestyle in which he, learned, he has learned to submit to the kingship of God. That part of his character is to follow what God says. That he has no issues submitting to what God says. You know why? Because to him, God is king. Not just friend, not just partner, not counselor, not my best friend. Even though he is, but king. 
I think that it is safe to assume that God was leading him to move to Moab, even though it didn't make any sense from a historical perspective, and Elimelech submitted to the Lord, obeyed the Lord, even though it did not make sense. Now, the second reason why I think that this is, the, this is what's happening here is because we know that God had a plan with the Moabites and that God was going to use a Moabite, Ruth, in the story of redemption. We know that God in his sovereignty was going to use this family in this place to accomplish his purposes. There is no reason why I should doubt that the Lord was pushing uh, or prompting Elimelech to get to this land because he had plans in the lands of the enemy. In the midst of a culture in which everyone is doing as they please, in the midst of a culture in which people do what is right in their own eyes, the Christian faith says that we must learn to submit to what the Lord says, regardless if it makes sense or not. Let me tell you what makes sense. What makes sense is that we follow what the world does. It's easier, cheaper, cheaper, and safer. But it doesn't make sense from a human perspective is that we submit to, we submit to the Lord. What it doesn't make sense from a human perspective is that we go against the philosophy and the current culture. See, in our time and in our culture, you, do, you, you, you ought to do you. You ought to submit to your own desires and your own dreams. You ought to submit to your own feelings and plans. You ought to put yourself first. But the people of faith understand that even if I don't want to, my job as a Christian is to submit to God as king. Is to follow him as king. And is to surrender to him as king. Why would Elimelech do that? For the same reason that all the missionaries that we interacted with the last two weeks moved to a different part of the world. Because God told them to. Simple as that. See, in order for us to live where we live, in a culture in which we're part of, that's what it means to live by faith. To live by faith requires submission to God as king. That's the difference between religion and faith. Religion submits to God only if there's a benefit for me. Faith, genuine faith, submits to God because he's God. Let me say that again. We submit to God because he's God. There's no negotiation. That's why the Ten Commandments are not the Ten Suggestions. Because he's God. In the midst of chaos, in the midst of a world that, that, in which everyone does what they think is right in their own eyes, we make the difference. We submit to him. That's what we can learn from Elimelech. Now, let's learn from Naomi. 
And with Naomi, we're going to learn about sacrifice. Now, look at what it says in verse 3. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. And there's one thing that I want you to see here in this text. Because Moab, uh, Elimelech understood that if he was going to move to Moab, was not for assimilation. That's not what we see in his life. The reason why he moves to, to Moab is because either the Lord, the Lord told him or he wanted to rescue his family. But he knew, just as the rest of the family, that they were not to assimilate to the culture in which they were going to live. Actually, one thing that is clear about the Israelites is that they all know that you're not supposed to marry with people outside your faith. And the reason is super simple. Because the moment you have this intimate relationship with a person, like marriage, their gods become your gods. And there's always a temptation to sacrifice convictions in the name of love. This is the reason why the New Testament says that we shouldn't marry in an unequal yoke. That's exactly what it means. And if you don't think that that's a thing, just read the story of Samson in the book of Judges. And you would see that when he got intimate with a woman of a different faith, things went south. So all these people, all the Israelites know that that's not what is supposed to happen. Now the text tells us that Elimelech died and what some scholars believe is that when he died, these two sons ignored what the Lord has said. And that's part of the reason why they marry Orpah, which is a Moabite, and Ruth, which is a Moabite. Now, this is what I want you to see. God's plans do not depend on our faithfulness. God's plans and what he wants to do are not bound to our obedience or disobedience. What I find amazing about this story is that even as these two irresponsible young men, even though they married two women that were not supposed to marry, God used even their disobedience for his glory and his purposes. So let me put it super simple, and I've said it before. You cannot mess up God's plans. <laughs> oh, man, what is God going to do? I messed up. God says, bro, repent. And he doesn't use bro. He's saints. Saints, repent. And keep on going because my plans are not bound to you. We can see that clearly in the story. So look at what it says in verse 4. After they had lived there about 10 years, both these Malon and Kilon also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, that last phrase changes everything in this story. So here you have this woman that are at an older age, in that context and in that time, lost her husband and later lost her two sons. And this literally would mean back in those days, in that context and in that time, 
the end of her life, the end of her heritage, and the end of her legacy. Just because she lost every male in her life. See, there's various reasons here, uh, culturally speaking, why this is the case. From this point on, there will not be anybody that will carry the family name. Orpah and Ruth have no kids. In that culture, that time for the Israelites, that was extremely important. Like right now, if I die, there's 20 million Rodriguez in this world. And if you're Smith, there's like 50 million people of you. But that's not the case here. See, Naomi, not only that is true, but Naomi, Naomi belongs to the oldest clan of the Israelites. So with these kids dying, that clan is disappearing. Naomi is already too old to remarry. So that is the end of, the, of her story. And not only that, but because she doesn't have a husband and she doesn't have the two sons, her future is completely, completely insecure. See, when back in those days, if you're married, usually the, the, the wife will move into the husband's uh, family. So it's almost like if you're leaving your family behind, right? And if you lost your husband then it was the responsibility of the kids to support the mom. When the daughters got married, they would go somewhere else. <clears throat> so even the family connection here, even if she had real daughters, she wouldn't be able to have the daughters there. Can you see why this is such a crazy thing and a complicated thing for Naomi? Actually, there was a study done to compare what the culture is like and what our culture is like. So this is a study done, and they asked these questions to American men. Listen up. This is the question. If your, mother, if your mother, your wife, and your daughter are all in a sinking boat, and you can rescue only one of them, who would you rescue? Listen, if I were to ask you that question here, that would be so awkward. <laughs> right? Because the husband will be like, and she will be like, how would you answer that? <laughs> because I love you, I'm going to ask you the question. If you're a male here, who would you save? Your mother? Don't answer, please. You're going to get in trouble. <laughs> Just think about it. Your mother, your wife, or your kids. Now, because we're Christian, I'm assuming that you would say, of course, my wife. But 60% of the American men responded that they would save their daughters first. Isn't that crazy? 40% say that they would rescue their wife. No one said that they would rescue their mom. <laughs> That's crazy, right? Sorry, moms. They asked the same question to Saudi men. And every single one of them said that they would rescue their mother. It tells you a lot about the culture. Because you see, for them, you ought to provide for your mother. You ought to protect your mother. Now, why you spend all this time explaining this about Naomi? Naomi. 
because it elevates much, much, much more what Naomi is about to do. It shows you that this woman has this kind of love that we ought to imitate. See, when Naomi says this to their daughters-in-law in verse 8, go back each of you to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown me kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. She is saying this to the, to, the, um, to the few people she has in her life. I'm willing to die to myself. I'm willing to die to the little security I have with you. I'm willing to die to anything I have for your sake. You guys go. I stay behind. You know how crazy that is? For an older woman with nothing left, the one thing she has, she's willing to let go for their sake. That's what it means to love, you know? To love is be willing to disadvantage yourself for the sake of somebody else. Real love, I've said this before, and I will say it until I die. Real love is measured not just by the things we give and the things we say, even though that's important. Real love is measured by how much we are willing to sacrifice and by how much I'm willing to die to myself. And Naomi, an older woman with nothing left, she was willing to do that. So much to learn from this beautiful lady. Now, was that easy for her? Of course not. Was she like, oh, yeah, go, I'm going to die? Not at all. Internally, she's struggling, and yet she chose to love. How do I know that? Well, when you read the text, as we read it before, you know that Ruth and Orpah actually started arguing with her because they want to convince her that they want to stay with her, Right? Um, so one of the arguments that Naomi is using to convince them that they have to go, is says, listen, even if I remarry, which she will be ent- entitled to, to do, and even if I have kids, in verse thir- uh, 13, she says, would you wait until they grow up? Would you remain and marry for them? No, my daughters, pay attention to how she's talking to these two ladies. It is more bitter for me than for you because The Lord's hand has turned against me. You know, she's not saying this is what just happened. She says, the Lord's hand has turned against me. What I love about Naomi is that she doesn't have this phony, positive attitude or mentality. She's being completely honest. This is the Lord's doing. That's lamentation. 
Look at what it says later on in verse 20. Don't call me Naomi. This is when she goes back to Bethlehem, and people are saying, oh, nice to see you, Naomi. And she says, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Notice that? The Lord, God Almighty, has made my life very bitter. Verse 21. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Pleasant. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. There's so much we can learn from this lady. In the midst of her internal struggle, she still chooses to love. But, she, but she's not pretending that everything is okay. She's honest and vulnerable and vocal about her struggle. And yet, she does not lose hope. You know how I know that? Because she uses the name for God of Lord, Yahweh, the personal name of God. And she calls God Almighty, Shaddai, God that is in control, a cosmic ruler. All this is happening at the same time. She's choosing to love. She's honest about her struggle. And yet, she's not losing hope. Can you imagine what our, how our lives would be if we, we learned how to do that? See, the Bible does not give us permission to have this phony optimism. You know, everything is going to be okay. You don't know. It doesn't give us permission also to this toxic pessimism. Oh, this is hell. No, no, no. It's, we choose to love. We are honest about our struggles, and yet we don't lose hope. See, this is the kind of people that the Lord uses in the midst of chaos. People like Elimelech that is willing to submit to God as king People like Naomi that is willing to sacrifice even if he feels, even if you don't feel it. And lastly, God uses people like Ruth, committed people. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to spend a lot of time with Ruth because that's what we're going to do with the rest of the book. But there's something about Ruth and Naomi that is so clear as you read the text, and that is that they have this special relationship. Such love has Naomi for these two ladies that as I showed you before, she calls them daughters. Which in that context, in that time, if your husband died, you automatically, as a daughter-in-law, you automatically will become a slave to the mother. So you know the issues that we have with mother-in-laws? That comes from there. <laughs> but that's not the relationship they have. She loves these ladies. So one of the ladies, Orpah, decides to go. But look at what Ruth says in verse 14. And at this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. She left. But Ruth clung to her. In verse 16, she says, But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God my God. This is how you know that the Lord was already working in her heart. And in verse 17, where you die, I will die, and there will, I will be buried. 
may the Lord, Yahweh, deal with me, be it ever so severely, even death, even if death separates us, you and me. Now, the, inter the interesting thing about the word to cling in verse 14 is that it's the same word that is, is found in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. It is the same word that God uses to describe the relationship between a married couple. It says that a man should leave his mother and father and hold fast, is the same word, to his wife. This is the reason why when Christians talk about marriage, we don't talk about a contract. You know, you do your part, I do my part. If you don't do your part, I don't have to do my part. That's a contract. But the reason why as Christians we talk about a covenant is because it doesn't matter if the person fulfills their duties or not, I am committed to you. So in Genesis chapter 2, the word clean is used in the context of marriage. And here is used to describe the relationship between Ruth and Naomi. This is what Naomi is saying to Ruth. Even if you walk away from me, even if you mistreat me, even if you don't respect me, even if you don't love me, I will cling to you. That's a covenant. And I want you to see that in this story, the best example of what it means to be a Christian is Ruth. See, her sacrifice was greater than Elimelech's. Her submission was greater than Elimelech's. Her love is more sacrificial than Naomi's. Let me just read to you what this commentator says. Ruth stands alone. She possesses nothing. No God had called her like Elimelech. No deity has promised her blessings. No human being has come to her aid like Naomi and Ruth. She lives and chooses without a support group, and she knows that the fruit of her decision may well be the emptiness of rejection, indeed of death. She's choosing to go with Naomi to a land, Bethlehem, that is the enemy land. Nobody knows her, and she's risking her life. And there is more. Not only has Ruth broken with family, country, and faith, but she has also reversed a sexual alliance. A young woman has committed herself to the life of an old woman rather than the search for a husband. One female has chosen another female in a world where life depends upon men. There is no more radical decision in all the memories of Israel. Actually, this commentator says, and I agree with him, that her faith is greater than the one Abraham exercised. Because God spoke to Abraham. God made promises to Abraham. And she doesn't have any of that. And yet, she commits. There's so much to learn from Elimelech in terms of submission. 
There's so much for us to learn from Naomi in terms of loving sacrifice. But there's so much to learn from Ruth, Ruth and what it means to be committed. Can we live like that? I think so. You know how I know that? Because we got the blessing of Elimelech, Naomi, and Ruth. Did you know that it is from Ruth that King David comes? And it is from King David that we got Jesus. See, the reason why I can say that we can live this out is because we have been empowered by the gospel. See, the reason why I say that we can live this out is because we have something better. We have something better than Elimelech. We have Jesus that also submitted to God as king. The difference, though, is that Elimelech died because of natural reasons. And Jesus died because of our sin. And Jesus knew that. And he submitted to God. Why? For you. If that doesn't empower you, nothing else will. How about if I argue that Jesus is even a better example of Naomi? Because even though Naomi sacrificed all these things and was willing to sacrifice all these things, the one thing she didn't sacrifice because she didn't have to was her life. And Jesus sacrificed it all. See, Jesus is the perfect example of what it means to love. Not just in words and not just in actions, but love by sacrifice. Why wouldn't we live for God as loving, sacrificing people if we have a Savior that sacrificed for us? How about if I tell you that Jesus gives us something better than what Ruth actually had. See, Ruth committed to Naomi and never walked away from God. But Jesus made it possible for our Father to commit to us. You know what it means to have the king of the universe clinging to you? You know how I know that? Because Romans chapter 8 says that in Jesus... There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Why wouldn't you live for him? Why wouldn't you commit to him and commit to the people that the Lord has placed in your life? When you have a God that committed to you. Let's keep on in our journey as we learn from Ruth. May the Lord speak to us and transform us. Amen? Let's pray. Beautiful Savior, we are grateful that the Bible makes it clear, Lord, that we learn and we are transformed by the things we hear and the things we believe. But the Bible also makes it clear, Lord, that we learn and are shaped by the testimonies of people that have lived lives the way they were supposed to. And I pray, Lord, that you make of us people like Elimelech, and people like Naomi, and people like Ruth. Not because we need to earn something from you, but because we have everything in you. Lord, I pray that the picture of the gospel, Jesus submitting, Jesus sacrificing, and Jesus' commitment 
is what gives us the freedom and empower us so we live lives for his glory and the well-being of others, even in the midst of chaos. And we pray for all of this. And the church says? We close our service today with a song using words by Fanny Crosby that gives us a beautiful picture of God clinging to us and us responding by clinging to him. Let's stand. My song shall be of Jesus, his mercy crowns my days. He fills from my cup with blessings and tunes my heart to praise. My song shall be of Jesus, the precious Lamb of God, who gave himself my ransom and bought me. So church family, as we close today, I have uh, a really exciting announcement for you. Hannibal and I both want to share some pretty big news. Are you ready? Okay. So the last two Sundays for Missions Fest, we had a special giving project where all congregations, all generations, our whole church was invited to give. We were praying for $50,000 or more. Um, to use uh, and send out to eight different projects globally to our missionaries and partners and here at home. Are you ready for the results 
of what you, our church family, gave, okay? I don't think you're ready, because I wasn't either. So I'm really excited to let you know that our church family, in one heart, one spirit, one mind, in unity, from one Sunday to another Sunday, special project for missions, you all gave $247,589. So we praise God for that for sure, but there's a couple of things that I think are more important than a final dollar amount. What I think is more important is that this took all generations of our church. I watched gifts come in from retirement accounts from retirees to Venmo transfers from our high school and middle school students to some of our youngest wanting to offer their cash allowances for the students in Kenya, part of the project. So four generations, I think that is worth praising God, Amen. took part in this giving project. and unique households giving. This took our whole church. Last year was our best ever with 384 unique households stepping up in faith to give towards a special giving project. This year, you, church family, 452 unique households gave to the special Missions Fest giving project. I praise God for that. And so uh, as we let our, our missionaries and partners know, there's some fun phone calls coming up because in lead up to the project, they would present, like in the Dominican Republic, they said three to $5,000 will fully stock a library at one of our schools for several hundred kids in the Dominican Republic. Well, there's a very fun phone call to say uh, there's gonna be a few libraries that get to be stocked. Amen. And our partners in Lebanon serving and livelihoods with uh, refugees and, and young adults with disabilities said, yes, if Wheaton Bible Church and this project can step up and start with the first half, we in faith will start the project and we know God is going to provide. Well, because of this giving, uh, the phone call is going to say that project and more is done today, fully funded. Wow. And so we praise God. So I commit to you, we'll be in touch and I'll be here in the coming months and just celebrating. You'll hear from our missionaries, we'll get reports from the ground on all that God is doing um, as our church family just got to step out in faith uh, together and give in this way. So just want to thank you again and to say this celebration is just beginning because God is going to work through this for months and years to come. So church, thank you and praise God. So I want you to see something. What we are experiencing here is what it means to have a group of people that submits to the Lord as king, that is willing to love sacrificially, and that is committed to God and his kingdom. So that's what the Lord is already doing in our midst. Now, you know that we're stepping into the last quarter of the, of the year. And I'm asking you to continue to live by faith. And that the Lord use you to provide for the needs of the church. Amen? Amen? So there's three ways to give. You could always give online. As you leave these doors, you could always leave your offering and your tithe in one of the boxes over there. You could always send a check to the office. What matters most is not the amount that you give. 
but that you know that you submit to the Lord, that you love and give sacrificially, and that you commit to him and his kingdom. Amen? Let's receive the blessing that Jesus Christ guarantees for us at the cross. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May, may the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face to you and give you peace. And this beautiful church says, Amen. have a blessed day. Thanks for coming. We love you.